0: Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here today with Ted Gashu. Hi, Ted. Sam,
3: great to have you here. <laughs> Can you tell the audience sort of who you are and what you do? That's a very good question. And uh, it's been a very existential one in the past few <laughs> weeks, because uh, much like you, I'm sure... Uh, Everything that I, that I would define myself as who I am has been thrown out the window. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, as as I find myself in one place for longer than I've been in four years. I'm a media consultant. I'm a photographer. I'm a car enthusiast. Uh, I'm not a car expert. I'm a uh, I'm a guy who likes his Porsches. I'm a guy who likes to travel. I'm a guy who likes to meet people and tell their stories. Ideally,
0: and if
3: let's let's sort of dig back. How did you how did you start out? How did you get into Cause I've told this story many times. Uh, I, I I grew up in a car family, my family back before I was born, my father and his un- and my uncle and his father used to buy and sell, uh, buy, restore and sell crashed cars in okay. this in the sixties and seventies. So you had, um, uh, which I've, I've definitely mentioned this bit before, uh, in, in other interviews and in other podcasts, but I, I think what's still fascinating to me is that in, in during that period, it was this kind of golden era of be having access to these types of cars that were still quite expensive back then. you know buying a Ferrari wasn't cheap, buying a Porsche wasn't cheap um but because of the way in which insurance companies were structured and in the way you would insure your car, if you totaled your car, you had to basically just sell the the scrap to recoup some of the loss yeah. and my my grandfather was an engineer and a tinkerer and uh, just a, an automotive enthusiast, and my and my dad likewise, and my uncle likewise, and they would just buy the coolest cars that were crashed. So you know, Ferrari um, what was the what last one, three hundred and thirty GTC bought bought for like three thousand, yeah, restored, sold for fifteen thousand, which back then was just an astronomical yeah, yeah. amount of money. The car is now worth five hundred or something insane, man. And yeah, the, my, the, I got all these amazing photos, which uh, I can pull up on my phone at some point of my grandparents, uh, driveway and garage, which was just littered with cars, Lotus Europas, two sevens, two seven RS's, like cars that were just kind of it, drunk idiots had wrapped them around the pole. Mm. Um, they, they, grew up, um, outside of New York City. So we were in a suburb, a bit kind of like a Gloucestershire type, uh, region of New York and a, you know, a lot, a lot of wealthy people would come out the city party for the weekend at their friend's country house, crash their car. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then my, 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 my family would just buy the cars and they knew how yeah. to fix them and they would re- get, I think I'm quite good at restoring them. And then they, uh, they would enjoy them. So cars were just always part of my family's background. And then, uh, growing up, my, um, my dad's an architect. So we, like any, any kind of creative industry you have Bust and boom. And uh, you have periods of of great success and then periods of nothing. And so in between that, we it meant that we never really had new cars because we couldn't we we didn't have like the credit history or we couldn't like lease cars, you know. So we would instead have this whole backlog of insanely cool cars that at the time were just kind of rust buckets. So like gray market 84 Range Rover um you know with a hole in the floor my car the the 76S um mm. you know that was we were we were the second owners of that car and we bought it for 5 grand yeah so it's nice. like that, we just always had cars like that because we couldn't like we couldn't afford a new car yeah <laughs> <laughs> so these cars hadn't you know they, they were enthusiast communities but this is back in the days when a a 250 gto was a a five-figure six-figure car you know this wasn't a crazy time 20 30 years ago so yeah we just i grew up in a family that just valued great design couldn't afford the new model Mm -hmm. so instead would buy the back catalog which in the in the weirdest way was the greatest gift because it exposed me to this whole this whole world but it was it was never it was never told to me as anything other than this is the car we have. Yeah. you know, No one ever told me it was exceptional to have these cars or exceptional to do this or blah, blah, blah. There was passion for the cars for sure. And we knew how to maintain them and everything. But yeah, no, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a, in the way that today owning a classic car is something a bit of a, like an identity statement. Mm. This was much more of this transportation. The yeah. yeah. You know, 300 TD wagons, so the whole thing. That's so, cool. That's yeah. cool.
0: So then what was your first job ah. in the car industry? Where did you go?
3: Well, no, my, 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 career is long and in, in winding for a very short period. Of, I mean, first I've really only been professionally active for 10 years now, mm. um, since, since I graduated school. So I'm 31. I left. What did you study? Finance. Um, and then I, uh, I had intended to work in finance during, but then 2008 happened, 2009 yeah. happened, no jobs in finance. My, my internships in finance were, you know, they disappeared. It was just a very tough time for that industry, obviously. And I ended up uh, interning at Christie's Auction House because I I had a a minor in photography at school. So like a a secondary degree. Yeah. I don't know what you'd call them over here. And I essentially kind of BS my way into an internship there. Had an amazing summer learning about the art world and then uh, went back to school graduated still no jobs in finance so the degree was totally useless and the only other skill set i had in school was djing so i okay. uh, i was a professional dj nice. um i worked for red bull through all throughout college and then i moved to new york and uh, was dating a girl at the time and she got me a gig at this kind of how did you end up working for red bull as a dj or did you just apply red red bull had a whole coll- collegiate circuit Back then, so okay. I would I would work for like a regional representative, and it was it sounds much more professional than it is. It was much more like Red Bull sponsored college parties, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was the DJ for. Some I remember reason.
0: the people walking around with like big cans of like the backpacks of Red Bull and stuff, and there'd be like Red Bull reps everywhere.
3: Yeah, it was. It it was somewhere in between that level of grassroots and, and like professional. Yeah. It was, it was, they just had region, you know, Red Bull was trying to get everywhere. So, and they wanted to catch people at that collegiate age where you, your ability to consume caffeine is at an all time high. <laughs> so yeah, we, we just, um, I drove all over these East coast DJing parties. Really and I got pretty good DJing. And then I, uh, when I got to New York, I was the only thing I had. Cause I didn't want to move home after school. I wanted to go straight to like the big city and, you know, try my hand. Mm. So I did that, and that took off. Did that for two years. Did made really good money at it. Had a lot of fun. Totally ripped it for two years. Still coming down from that uh, that period. <laughs> and then uh, and met somebody who owned a consulting firm, kind of like a traditional management consulting firm. Um, during that period, and he asked me to come work for him as an associate at his consulting firm. So overnight, I went from DJ at night to consultant with a suit on during the day and, uh, was working for Dow Jones, uh, NASA and Arriva, which is the, um, I think it's the same company that makes the London buses, yeah. like an industrial company doing yeah, yeah. leadership training for <laughs> the, uh, the, the corporate suite. And, you know, I had no, I was 22. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing, but that was a very interesting period. It was about a year long. Then they asked me, they're like, now you know, you should go back to business school and. Because of my time DJing, I, I I felt that I knew enough people. You know, one of the best things you get out of business school is a network. If that yeah. makes sense. So uh, I felt I had a network at that time in New York City that was probably greater than anyone could get at a business school. And I also just hated school. I had no interest in going back to school. Not that I hated; it, I just I hated the simulation of school. I wanted yeah. I wanted real life, and so I did that. And then I went from there instead of going to business school. A friend of mine took over a newspaper, the, the New York Observer, for um, which is owned by Jared Kushner, who's the son-in-law of Donald Trump. Okay, <laughs> strangely, and then yeah, I became a nightlife reporter. Did that for a year in uh, in New York and met. A thousand more people and just had this incredible ride there for a year. And then uh, one of the hotels I used to DJ at, the Soho Grand Hotel in uh, d- downtown New York City, they um, they were starting a kind of a, a magazine, online magazine to market their hotel. And I said, well, fuck it. I'll, I'll do that. And uh, so I took over that magazine that they were uh, starting up. And then I did that. I ran that for a year and a half and hired all these old Vanity Fair writers and um, (laughs) paid them cash on delivery to give me great, like kind of behind the scenes stories of New York in the eighties. And then, which got a lot of notoriety and then led to the founder of the Huffington Post, uh, Kenneth Learer. He found out about me through Graydon Carter, who was the editor of, of Andy Fair at the time. And then they set me up with Ken's son, Ben, who owned a media group called Thrillist, Thrillist media group. Thrillist I think has some presence over here. And then they, at 24, they wrote me a blank check to start my own magazine. Sick. So I did that. (laughs) Yeah, it was very cool. And then so within two years I had a team of 16 under me and, uh, two and a half million users per month on this website called supercompressor.com. And okay. then what was that aimed at? Do you, you know the website unc- uncrate.com? Yeah. 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 So yeah. we, we uncrate was kind of our, our starting off point and uh LC Agnell over there is a, is a good guy. And uh, we really liked what they were doing, but we felt that, that we could, uh, we could tie editorial to it while making the commerce a bit more interactive and trying to own a piece of the commerce. Yeah. So we wanted to, we wanted to do the fulfillment on the transaction, not just be like recommending you to yeah. buy stuff. So it was a, it was, a, it was very of that age. You know, it was very of the 2013, 2014 media landscape, trying to find content in commerce, yeah. much like Netaporte and all these other websites, but it was aimed at guys. And, uh, and so we, we really tried this and it, we did pretty well with it. And then I, I was working seven days a week, you know, and really in an unhealthy place after that, especially in New York, it's very easy to, to work crazy hours and then party crazy hours yeah, and yeah. work crazy and just hours. Do this endless loop. Yeah, London's a bit kinder, I find, but the New York really kind of it socially normalizes, um, that, that kind of overworking culture. And then I had been working with Petrolicious.com to talk, uh, you know, re-syndicating some of their videos and I just loved what they were doing. And yeah. I, I didn't know much about the people. And then I, I think I had to be out in LA for a, uh, I, I created some reason to be in LA and flew out to LA and had a breakfast with the founder Afshin Sheen And he, cause he liked what I was doing. And he was like, well, could you come and help me scale Petrolicious? Mm. And I was so burnt out with New York and so looking for a new challenge. I said, yeah. And I, I moved out there. And uh, and I had an amazing two years basically managing all their editorial uh, product, projects for them and uh, running that platform for them. Uh, they The video was, was treated a bit separately, but they played together. And then, you know, on a shoestring budget, we made that thing really big. How do you go about like turning when you...
0: I, I can't remember when I first came across Petalicious, but just vaguely came across it was like oh there's this thing out there producing quite it was all high level content that i could see
3: yeah it's everyone everyone was exposed to their videos you know if you were a car guy you somebody forwarded you the 250 gtr video someone forwarded you that uh, 250 tr video the guy that made it by hand you know we all saw these videos and we were like this is like Hollywood it was it was 10x better than what anyone else was doing at the time and And they all had a really nice feel they all felt like they came from the same people and um yeah, they were done very thoughtfully. You know, their formula, which has now been replicated many times over by many different places, uh, was, is, was still at that time, just no one could crack it. They couldn't figure it out because everyone would just, either they would see the budget is so insane to achieve that like Hollywood level budget or whatever. So, you know, what well, I think Petrolicious did very well. And I, I, I definitely think that they probably, um, you know, they, they burned a lot of bridges this way is that they, they paid just DP day rates. Yeah, which are very agreeable. You know, if you've ever commissioned video, a DP day rate is is kind of industry standard just to go shoot something. Yeah, and they would get these really great DPs who were in between bigger projects could afford to go work for a thousand bucks a day yeah. or whatever it was, two thousand bucks a day, and and so you could get that levels work out of it. And then on staff they would have an editor that would edit everything to feel the same. Yeah, the same. So it was it was done like as a total passion project, no interest in making money. Just like this is something that needs to be um you know just done out of love, and I think that that really worked for them very well you know they they, they uh they built a lot of industry credibility they built a lot of uh you know they built a huge fan base, and when i arrived nobody people knew of uh, i'd say a kernel of the of the audience knew of the um of the videos yeah but there was no you know, I think they had 15,000 fans on Instagram, you know, Yeah. there was, there was 20,000 fans on Facebook. It wasn't like a platform. It was a YouTube channel that had like a, a website that didn't load on mobile. <laughs> so we just, we, we pushed and we pushed and we pushed. And, you know, by the time I left, uh, we had 300,000 Instagram fans and a million Facebook, whatever it was, just some, yeah. some comical number. And, uh, and, and then my, my big push when I was there was to try to create a subscription model, which they've now gone and done in their own way. Because I, I believe that there's no way you can keep you know, once you grow to a certain size, people's willingness to work for you for just a day rate yeah. disappears. So there was a scalability issue in their films and the scalability issue in their whole website that I think that I thought could be alleviated with a Netflix model. The problem is, is that there's like five other people who feel, feel the same and you've got motor train on demand. You've got all yeah. these different platforms. And so I think that the, the, the car, the video focused car world is quite scattered from a media landscape perspective. And you know, it, I also just think that accessing it is a little s- strange. Like I, I don't, I don't know how to get motor trend. I could probably look into it. Yeah. But like, it's, it's not immediately obvious. Like it's not Netflix level easy because no one's taken the time to invest in a platform that is of that yeah. quality. So everyone has these kind of clunky platforms that make it like a little awkward to use. And because they're all kind of doing it themselves, the budgets aren't quite there to do the big budget style, like, you know, the grand tour level yeah. production quality. So or there, if there is, you you burn out all your relationships because you're getting everyone to do it for free, basically. Yeah, so, I've
0: uh, always wondered as as someone that makes content every now and then, takes photos, whatever, just shoots some video, You look at these high production videos coming out of whether it's Drive, Petrolicious, whatever, and I know from like, let's just say YouTube revenue, you're never paying back that no. that level of it. It's impossible. You're plowing tens of thousands of pounds in, and you're getting nothing out. Yeah, like how. I've always lit, let's say a platform like Petrolicious. Like how how on earth do you monetize? Like how do you monetize that? How are you monetizing that well, platform?
3: when I was there, we were definitely breaking even. You know, we would get really great ad contracts to go and create content for brands. So it was much more of like a creative consultancy that had a digital platform. Yeah it was a distribution platform that it could also create the content in-house. So Porsche would come to us and say, we have X budget. We want to create X, Y, Z. What can you do? And we would go, we'll create X, Y, Z. And then we'll also distribute it to the right people. Cause we, at that time we had yeah. the audience, you know, we had a million people on YouTube. We had 400,000 on, uh, or no, we had 300,000 on Instagram. We had an ecosystem. To of, distribute these th- things right. on. So it was a compelling a- advertising product, but man, an advertising editorial product uh, and video product will never be worth geometric money like it used to be during broadcast days just yeah. not, not going to be the case so so yeah it was it was a challenging business um i when i decided to leave it was not an easy decision because i really loved the business and i loved the people there and we had a great time and i still love petrolicious and i think that it's just it's such a fun thing you know yeah. it's it's very done- really cool it's just cool. And, you know, if it could run on vibes forever, I think it would, you know, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately what, when you decide to like, I, either you run on vibes and you keep it tiny and and sporadic, yeah. or you try to create like the illusion of being this multinational conglomerate of teams of people. But in reality, like it was just a very small group of people working crazy hours, trying to make it work. work yeah. uh, and then you start to look at what really great media businesses look like and what and you realize how many people are involved and that, you know, just the overhead and, and, and what that even looks like. And you start to just go. Phew. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, 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 I guess it's more accurate to say that I was a media guy. I was a car guy by birth, a media guy by trade. And then during that process of Petrolicious, I rediscovered my love of photography and because it was cheaper to pay myself nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have our production budget to, for the website was very low. And so I just, I, I bought a camera. I bought a, a what was it? I guess it would have been an EOS 5D, like the first yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bought it on eBay for like six hundred bucks or something, and I bought the the 1.850 that everyone uses, and you know, and just and just started shooting again, and it was like, oh shit, this is yeah, this is exactly what I want to be doing. And then my friend Matt Jacobson, who uh, is on the board at Leica, he pushed me to to explore uh, the Leica Q, mm. which really kind of s- satisfied. What I was looking for in a camera that would be compact, still full frame, could take an amazing image, and would really kind of, you know, as you know, the problem with a big SLR is that you look like a paparazzi at yeah. any time. And if you're if you're around high net worth people who own these types of cars, or just people in general, people get a You've bit got a big zoom lens on you. People just get 1DX. they clam up, and they, and they and they and they you get treated like an outsider. Because what I wanted to do at Petrolicious, at Petrolicious was I, I wanted to be I wanted you as the audience member to be able to put on my glasses, my sunglasses and, yeah. and see what I was seeing. You know, I, I had no ego about it. I didn't, I didn't really give a shit about me as a character yeah. within that. It was more, I want access to things that no one else has access to. And I want to showcase Like I want to go inside people's private collections and showcase them in a way that the person whose private collection feels that I've done it justice, but then the audience feels like they've seen something they shouldn't have seen. Yeah. And and that became kind of my my mantra over the the two year period I was working there uh, of just getting going around the world at, at at such a frequency that it was almost sickening, and allowing the petrolicious audience and then ultimately my audience as a subset of that feel like they were me, yeah, and because that you know. There are, there there are much better car photographers out there in the world. You're one of them. Many of the friends that I have in the industry are technically much better photographers. Mm. What I think I did really well. And what I still do really well is that I get you in, in a way that no one else thinks to do.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. There's uh, always like,
3: you're
0: just in some cool place doing something cool. I'm like, yeah, that, that looks like fun.
3: But it's done. It's done to share that thing. It's not done to say, "Look at me, how cool it is and I'm there." Yeah, sure, yeah, I yeah. love being there. But it's done because I'm like, I, I, th- there's a great photographer called Slim Aarons who really went into he he captured an era, you know, from the 1950s through the 1980s, 90s of that jet set era. And when you look at his books, you feel like you're there. You know, he's not there. You're there. Yeah. And that's that's the magic of what I was trying to do, and what I still try to do is, you know. So I want, I want you to feel, you know, I, I wish you had been there. Yeah. Cause every time you tell one of these stories, like uh, of some crazy shoot you've yeah, done, yeah. like, oh, we rented out the Hungarian ring and blah, blah, blah. The, the crux of it is you should have been with me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I, I really, I love that idea of, of saying you should have been with me, but I wanted to take it like, well, why aren't you just with me? <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting
0: way of looking at shooting stuff because and I constantly have to remind myself, whether it's on a personal things that I'm doing anyway, uh, to, to, to shoot like a round rather than you get, you've got some image in your head and you go and create that one image and that's the boof moment. But it is really interesting to look back and or to, to see the bigger picture and the team and the crew and yeah. whatever, the stupid stuff like you end up doing that is around this one perfect image or set of images that you've sort of gone out to
3: create yeah and i feel like it, it justifies me being there yeah you know if i if i just go somewhere and i capture an image that makes you jealous and i'm there i haven't done my job like i've i've failed you know, radically if if i go somewhere and capture a moment in a scene so completely that you don't even feel that you needed to go there yeah <laughs> because you, just- you because you've experienced it now then i've done my job yeah and that's, that's much more, well, and also likely you wouldn't be allowed there. You know, I, I, it's, it's not so interesting for me to go to Goodwood and take the same 50 pictures as everyone else. Cause yeah. it's being done and you could just go, I, you know, I, I'd much rather go to the private track day of somebody that's never sh- photographed their car collection before yeah, yeah. and showing you what it's like to actually drive these cars. on tra- Like, I, I just want to capture something that you wouldn't otherwise normally get to see because I, I have this aversion to doing what anyone else is doing. And so, if if everyone tomorrow started copying exactly what I was doing, I would find something else to do because I would just be like, "It's done." Like, do you find it difficult now that so many people,
0: so many people have Instagram accounts not not just like general people, but I mean owners? One is I find it's good for access, but so many more people are taking pictures, posting stuff, things of of these things you would never see ten years ago. These collections you would never see. The kid now has an Instagram account. And posts this unbelievable stuff left, right, and center.
3: Yeah, well, I think that we're all just getting what, one. Narcissism is a streak that runs through almost everybody. You know, mm-hmm. we all have little moments of like, oh, I, I'd like to be known for that. <laughs> um, but two, I think that there's been a normalization with with the medium to the point where people feel comfortable that their story is being told accurately. Yeah, you know, like, but to me, it's it's grown quite boring just seeing someone with cool shit you know like
0: yeah yeah like i a full collection of ferraris so. like
3: like i i really love like alex penfold's instagram account cuz i'm like this guy he's mastered he's the king of the car spotters he's mastered the in situ shot of this car in the in the coolest location the coolest yeah. thing but I'm like, I want to know what girl that guy's fucking. You know, I, I, I don't care that he owns that car. Like, I, I want to see what like he eats for dinner. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. fascinated by the whole inter- interaction of that guy and that car, or whoever the person is that owns the car, whatever. I, I, I want, I want to know the story. The story, yeah. Because once, like, if I see that, if I just keep seeing this beautiful, beautiful in situ, in situ, in situ, like I just put one up. I don't know the story of this car. It's a, it's an amazing Rolls Royce that sits on the same street in Mayfair. And it's just a cool vibe. It's more of a vibe shot, but I'm like, I want to know like how many times that guy's gone bankrupt. You know, like I, yeah. I, I'm fascinated by these life stories. Um, Cause that, that's, that's, that's what interests me. I, I'm, I'm less, I'm less intrigued by the act of ownership. I, I think ownership is quite boring. Like uh, I th- I think any, any asshole can go buy anything. I, I, I've, recently, I don't know why this has stuck out for me. Uh,
0: Amongst all my friends and everyone I know, when someone buys a new car, everyone says congratulations. Now, I've always thought it's a bit of an odd thing to say some, someone when they've bought a car because it's not, the car is like the end point or part of an entire story. Maybe they're congratulating the dealer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, but like, wow, the you actual, got that price. Congratulations. Oh, congratulations for buying this car. Like, well, no, congratulations for working all your life to build something to then be able to buy the car or choose whatever like it's it's the rest of the story behind just a singular item purchase
3: yeah you know there's just there's a lot of great people out there that do a lot of great things in cars a lot of shitty people obviously because like, like any passion project or any passion um, industry there's assholes that get involved with the wrong reasons or in speculators or whatever so but they're you know you, you, the average person you'll meet at a Goodwood is just uh, the most interesting person you could ever hope to meet. You know, like like Dudley and Sally Mason Stearin, who live around the corner. These are like some of the first people that ever raced at Goodwood uh, once they brought it back in the, in the early nineties, and they they just have a, a competition Daytona that they that they drive around the street. You know, they drive cool. and, they're, and they're in their seventies, and, and they just and they chain smoke and and like. I think he owns like uh, I think I think they own some sort of um, like a, 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 a supermarket empire yeah. in, in in the in, in the Lake District. You know, like like these are fascinating people, and they uh, and their their whole life like the cars are just part of their whole life story. I mm-hmm. love the life story. I get quite bored by okay, rich guy or girl has nice toy. It's like okay, I'm also just somebody who's very happy in what I have. And I don't feel compelled. Like I I don't fetishize ownership. Yeah. Like I I don't feel like I need to own things. Like, like,
0: well, uh, do you think you went through a process of, of that come out the other end?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've seen it. I've seen everything. And I've seen, I've seen people that have everything. I've seen billionaires that have every toy you could ever want, but they have to schedule their fun two years in advance because of the lifestyle that allows them to have the toy. So I don't look at the toy as the reward. I look at the toy frequently as as like a burden, uh, in a way. Because you know, what the the real thing they don't have is time. You know, people that have these amazing collections, they have no time. Yeah. Um, and I can name a handful of people that have all the toys that I would want to have, and actually the time to use them. Like, I have one car uh, over here, and and I barely have time to use it. Yeah, and I'm I'm like I spent all day yesterday driving this 930 turbo up at sports purpose in uh, in, in Bicester. And, uh, and it's a fucking cool car. You know, it's, it's, it's continental orange over like chocolate brown interior. And I'm I'm totally in love with the car aesthetically (laughs) as an object. And like, I found myself last night, like scheming, like, like, okay, I could sell some watches. I could like take a loan out. I was like, maybe I could split it with James, whatever. Like there was all these stupid things that ran through my head and I'm like, I barely have time for like my perfectly restored, like total hot rod yeah. killer car that I love that I've had my whole life. Like what the fuck am I going to do with a second Porsche? Yeah. It doesn't even scratch a different <laughs> itch. It's not like, okay, I could see you, you want to buy a Defender so you can go off roading and you're like, okay, that makes, there's some yeah. sort of logic there. It's literally the same body wider with a turbo. It's, so it's, <laughs> it's mental how people's minds work. Like I, but I could totally
0: be like, Oh yeah, I would have a Targa and then I want a turbo and then I want a G3 because it's a different engine. You can, you can rationalize away like any decision.
3: hundred percent. But, but I'm telling you, once you do it, you, you you know, what's a good analogy? It's like, you're like, yes, I'll eat half that pie. And then you eat half the pie and you're like, I didn't need half the pie. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm, I'm in this position now where I'm like, what I want is total freedom. Like I rent my, I rent this boat. Uh, with my roommate Jamie, my life before lockdown, I lived on the road three hundred days a year i I could travel with impunity, I could travel comfortably, I could work from anywhere, my team supports me globally, and I have a dream project with Porsche that i 'm very in love with so uh, that was like that was like me realizing at that moment I have everything that I want, mm. and another nine eleven or another car is actually not it 's actually going to detract from that. Yeah. because what I'm really re- valuing is the freedom and the freedom to go meet people and tell stories because that's what I really yeah. love doing owning, owning cars is actually a pain in the ass I'm about to the ass <laughs> <laughs> like it's going to cost me 300 quid a month to park it over here yeah. it's going to cost me another uh, five grand a year and tinkering costs and uh, oil changes insur- and to save nothing of insurance and then
2: Code buttery exclusions apply. See site for details.
3: Well, you know, then I have to worry about someone stealing it, and then yeah. it's, it's a fucking <laughs> orange nine thirty turbo. Like someone's <laughs> going to try to nick it. So, or maybe they wouldn't. It's so, it's so orange. If you nick it, it's it's that obvious. Anyways, so I I, I just I worked myself up because I really love the object, and and then I realized like no, I, owning the yeah. object is not what I want to be doing.
0: And yeah, you can totally appreciate these things just by. Going to see them. get, If you get to drive them for like twenty minutes, you are like,
3: "Yeah, that was
0: cool. It's cool."
3: I am I, not sure that I would love it in the city because it's not a very torquey engine, obviously. But it's it, on the motorway; It was, it's very cool.
0: Yes. Uh, do you think traveling a lot has made
3: you yeah more absolutely. absolutely efficient like this? Yeah, hundred percent. Because you can only bring what you what's what fits in your suitcase. Yeah. So you you you're you you're, you're, you're in buying clothes of, of buying stuff when you have a fixed suitcase you become allergic to it. You're like, I don't want, I don't want it Yeah, because it'll only slow me down. Like uh, many people, when they go on vacation, they, you know, they, 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 they go, Oh, I have to buy that. I have the little souvenirs. I'm like, I want no souvenirs. I want no fucking magnets. I don't want anything to go <laughs> on my fridge because my fridge is covered in, you know, it's, it's, it's covered in whatever it is, particle board or something. I can't put magnets anywhere. Like I, I don't want any memorabilia. Yeah. The memorabilia is my photos and, and it's, it's, it's me because I've allowed myself to be transformed by the journey, and that's that's what I take away. And I think at first, when I first started really traveling, I was like, "Oh shit, I gotta buy!" You know, I want to buy this little mug, and I wanna, yeah. all, all these like <laughs> st- stupid things you think to buy actually are just the worst to own uh, and and to think about buying. Uh, I just it it gives me anxiety. When you really start traveling, it's a bit like George Clooney in that Up in the Air movie. You ever see that movie? I haven't seen that you just get so dialed in the way that you pack and the way that you know that what you need. And I know exactly how many shirts to bring for how many days. Mm. And I know that I can rewear this shirt twice without anyone noticing, like, yeah, like yeah. all these stupid things. And, and, you, and you get like so ninja-like about it that you really, anything that detracts from that, you, you start to feel like a professional athlete. <laughs> Not that I am one or have ever been one, but I can sympathize that if you're a professional a- athlete who's training <laughs> and wants to be really good at the thing and someone offers you like a beer at night you're like no i can't i don't want the beer because the beer will fuck me up tomorrow and it will make training harder it's it's a bit like that same mentality it's like keep keep it away i got my little system leave me alone and uh yeah i don't know i
0: I, i'm like that with my photography gear and stuff when i'm traveling like a good dose of traveling like a two-weeker or something i come back and i'm like okay i didn't use that or i could get away without using that and next time i'm not doing it or i packed an extra jumper and like no, that was just actually a pain the entire time the I was away because whatever your bag doesn't fit in the back of this stupid car yeah, you're driving.
3: Exactly. So you were at Petrolicious. Yep, and, and then, then uh, I, I really uh, around the two year mark, I start getting antsy if I'm working for somebody, hmm. if I'm like working under under somebody, I get I get bored. Uh, I don't know what it is like. It's usually. Uh, it's about two years in each time. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, it's one of these things where I can't explain it other than that. It's like career ADD, mm. but this, I knew deep down the solution for me was to go independent and start a consulting, basically start consulting on multiple projects, working yeah. for multiple people. And I was approached by triple zero magazine to do some consulting for them on their social media strategy. Um, and then I, I kind of just ran the numbers and I was like, you know what? I could probably get away with leaving Petrolicious. And, uh, I, there was like a brief conversation around what, what that would look like. And maybe, you know, and they offered me a very generous package to stay, but ultimately I just, unless I owned that business, uh, I didn't want to stay. Yeah. Um, which I encourage everyone to, to realize in their own career is like decide if you're gonna, if you're a forever employee or you're, or you're an owner, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm much more suited mentally to being someone with the flexibility of ownership than the rigid kind of structure of employment and i i just kind of i was like look and i had enough like you know emotional support from the the people around me and i said okay i'm i'm leaving and um i think i i, I retained Petrolicious as a client for a few months and and uh went okay and then i i ultimately was approached by Porsche to start a new magazine for them literally like a month and a half after i left um how does that
0: happen do you reach out, were you in touch with them at uh, this time
3: a uh, guy named reinhard Pachka, he uh, who worked for an agency of, of a volkswagen group agency in hamburg uh he reached out through a mutual friend who's a car dealer in uh, i guess in berlin and and he reached out through instagram and then i got onto a phone call with my friend my my colleague and friend now dennis keskin who is now in charge of uh, the global brand identity for Porsche. Mm. And, yeah, it began a 16-month procurement process, which I didn't realize was going to take 16 months, so I <laughs> told all my other clients <laughs> to fuck off so I could focus on this and then realized that was a mistake and essentially had to, like, bankroll myself on credit cards for a year and a half yeah, while picking up little gigs here and there as a photographer or whatever. But, yeah, I'm really not a... Uh, I'm not a contract photographer. Like I'm not good at doing what I don't want to do. You know, I I think a lot of guys can go out there and make a great shoot work or, you know, do, do an incredible campaign for Mondeo and it'll come out great. God bless them. And these guys are professionals. I'm not one of them. I definitely, I can, if, if something, if something aligns with what I want to be doing anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll deliver. But if it even is remotely not what I want to be doing, I'm like, I just can't be, I I can't be bothered because it just, it just angers me in a way somehow. Which is a total weakness, um, but it also it allows me to focus on what I actually really want to do and be good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is tell stories and, and manage a small team of people that also love telling stories. So what came out of all these conversations with Portia was type seven and uh, type seven turned into one of the best projects of my life. And it's been just an amazing ride uh, working with a really great small team that I've built around me. We've got uh, Nat twist who uh, is also a professional photographer, but is really great with social media. He's our managing editor and he, and so we also have Thomas walk who's down in Sydney. Thomas is uh, used to be with Deus ex machina, one of their creative uh, yeah. creative guys. And he's our book developer and producer and an incredibly talented shooter and just a really great guy. And so, yeah, we've got this really awesome little network of people that we like working with. And then, uh, of course, everyone else that we work with around the world, car photographers, architecture photographers, yeah. you name it. They all really, um, they support us in a way that's re- it's really cool. Hey, Lex, I, I remember, how long have you been doing it for now? Uh, we launched Christmas 2018 going into 19. Yeah, I remember it came out and I was like, oh, what's this? What is this? And it was just
0: cool Porsche content. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I love Porsches. Left, right and center. And then just created really nicely. Do you create all the, is all the content created by you guys?
3: I'd say 70 to 80% is commissioned um, or done in-house. Yeah, so you know with photographers like you we would say hey, we need this done they go they go and do it and then it's done we pay i'd say probably above average uh for the industry uh, on an editorial scale you know yeah. we we don't have porsche budget for photography like a lot uh, sometimes we'll, we'll we'll talk with a photographer who's used to working with car companies and yeah. they, they'll, they'll quote us a day rate of five grand or something and we're like Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, compared to what Petrolicious or uh, Classic Driver or these, yeah. you know, we, we pay more than they do. So we found this nice little niche. We license everything. The photographers retain ownership, which is, I think, a really yeah. honest way to do business. And yeah, and we've had nothing but great feedback from everybody. And it's just it's created a lot of positive energy. I can't think of a single person we've worked with that has a negative thing to say. And it's it's just... Uh, you know it, uh, the pur- the purpose of the project is to bring in P- a, a new generation of people into Porsche. So obviously, everyone on this podcast is a car guy. I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. So it's it's not 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 the demographic, <laughs> to be frank. But it's um you know we're trying to bring in people that otherwise wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable going to a car page.
0: How do you approach that then?
3: Well, we we talk about things that aren't cars. You'll you'll notice only one out of every four posts we do is about yeah. a car we talk about art. We talk about architecture. We really love architecture. And, uh, and we talk about how they all play together. And, you know, we, we don't tell you that Porsche is cool or relevant. You know, we're not saying, like, here's why Porsche is cool. Yeah. You know, here's why it's hip. You know, we don't, we don't <laughs> say anything about, you know, why we love Porsche. We go and find people that have a passion, and we just talk about their passion. And so we just, we, we, we make it self-evident. We think that, you know, something special is happening there. And if you discover us through an architecture post and a lot of our architecture posts outperform our car posts and we have a definitely a, a car audi- a, a car focused audience mm-hmm. more, more so than than not, but it's, uh, yeah, it's really impressive to watch how people that, you know, had no relationship with the car world whatsoever will come in and discover that they actually aesthetically are quite interested in Porsche. Yeah. And if, if, you know, if there's some 21-year-old guy who's, or girl, who's never really been a, uh, he didn't even think about Porsche, who came in because he saw a cool building, or someone forwarded him a post about an art installation, then we've done our job. Like, we've introduced someone to the Porsche world in a way that they now understand it at a core level with, you know, without feeling like they weren't welcome. Yeah. You know, a lot of car magazines, a lot of car you know it 's a little like you, you just walked into a Masonic temple and like they 're having an illuminati meeting and and you, you don 't have your your yeah. pyramid on your head, you know <laughs> like you, you feel like you 're an outsider I, I always hated that I always hated feeling like an outsider because i i 'm an outsider like i 'm not an expert like yeah. i don 't like even within the Porsche community, which i I know probably the most about, I was up at sports purpose yesterday and, and they 're talking about shit that i 'm just like. <sighs> that's above my pay grade <laughs> you know the, 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 when they start getting into like all these different cams and all the oh, yeah know, i'm just like my, my eyes kind of roll over and i'm like is it sweet or not like yeah, yeah <laughs> i'm yeah. much more, su-
0: put a summary over this i'm
3: much more binary i'm like is this thing dope or is it not and uh and yeah it's 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 kind of my i think i think a lot of people are actually secretly like that like yes you have like you know a lot the anorak crowd for sure but I, I always encourage the Anorak crowd to invite the non anorak crowd to hang out because how else do you become Anorak Yeah, if you don't start out, you know. And I
0: think like those people that put pure factual technical stuff above everything else. And then if someone comes to me and you can tell straight away, like I, I'm so normally like, are you, are you a car guy? Are you not a car guy. And then like, do you know what that is? If they say like a Lambo, you're like okay, you're not. You don't know what model. I know how to pitch it. But people get so technical on things and you can just, like you said, you just glaze over. You're just like, what What the hell are you talking about? But if that person is, one of the best experience I've had recently was Le Mans Classic last year walking around with Jarrah's dad. Yes. He met his dad. Um, and he's been a mechanic forever yeah. working on all these cool cars. We just walked around the pits and he'd be like, he just provide like an interesting nugget. Yeah. Not go crazy not anything, not all of it. Just be like, this car has a fixed rear axle and a chain drive, and that means it drifts everywhere. You're like, what the hell? This is from like
3: the 30s or something. Yeah. yeah, No, that's exactly how it should be. I think a lot, the majority of car guys probably are that way. It's just that you, every once in a while you meet somebody that's just sort of like, well, don't know, you don't know that. That's so why we can't be friends. <laughs> and you're like,
0: okay. We're not friends.
3: We were never going to be friends. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I like how I think you, Curate is, I guess it's the right word. Create like a a nice Instagram from a, like you said, you have architect pictures and all this sort of stuff. So I look at my own Instagram and it kind of annoys me that this all cars. And I, for a long time, wanted it to not just be cars. And you could just turn around and be like, well, post other stuff, mate. (laughs) This is is how this thing works. But I think loads of people get trapped into the I'm a car, but I have a car thing. I've just got to post cars and eventually that gets boring. Yeah.
3: Really fucking boring. <laughs> no, I uh look, we all have other interests, but if we don't talk about them, how do we know, you know? And, yeah. And like I love boats, I love I love books, I lo- I love food, I love travel, I love all these things. I love women, I love I love everything. So it's like if if you don't share and talk about all these things, how do you how do you build the relationships that are interesting, you know?
0: yeah it's like some my all my closest friends you talk about we talk about all sorts of rubbish all sorts of stuff like and everyone yeah. appreciates different things and that's that is just what makes life interesting with with the magazine where have, have you been to, you must have been to some cool places seen some where has it been some particularly interesting things or people you've met oh, along so the way
3: man i love bangkok bangkok's really cool really great car community there i love um I love Tokyo. I was supposed to live in Tokyo all last month, hmm. rented a house for the whole month and was going to move my team over there. So we don't have an office, uh, type seven, but what we do is every few months we'll rent a, a big apartment somewhere and just go move. Oh, it. That's cool. And so we all just move there to work together, which creates like a really great environment, I think. And, you know, pushes us to kind of understand a, a, a new culture in a way that yeah, yeah. reflects in our work very positively. So Yeah. Japan's just mind blowing. I, I love Asia. I, I love the way re- it's such a respect based culture. It's really special. And every time I leave Japan, I I, I feel like my faith in humanity is restored. So I, <laughs> you know, because everyone is just so focused on respect and, and focused on passion. And yeah, I lived in California for two years. I love California. I love I love Californian weather. I love Californian roads i love california girls i love i love all of it um what else do i, I love i love new york uh, it's, it's totally different energy to any other city on earth um you know never it's never stopping i i could go on and on. i love yeah, it yeah, i yeah. love everywhere because if, by the time i've chosen to go there it's because i really want to be there yeah so you won't hear me be like oh i hate singapore you know it's like no i <laughs> <laughs> like it's never going to be I, I it's just not part of my my vocabulary yeah. And if you're going to
0: shoot some stuff, you in very, you get to drop in, into an
3: immediately. Yes. And because of the Instagram thing, and because of the way I interact with people on Instagram, I get to meet the most interesting people in that region, typically, because, you know, if I post that I'm in Bangkok, I end up meeting people that like the same things that I do. And the By the nature of liking the same things I do, it means you're doing something pretty interesting there. Yeah. You know, like, especially in these countries where you you have to be comically wealthy to even own a car, you know, that person has a pretty interesting life story if they own like five Porsches in a place with 400% tax. Yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, you meet these people all the time and they're just, and they're, and and they're, they're the coolest, most interesting people. Yeah. You've got to really
0: like one brand to, if if it's 400% tax to buy a similar model. (laughs) Oh, yeah. What are the what are the challenges with because this is an online is it an, it's not an only an online only presence is it No, we you, do. You
3: do. You, your microphone stand is on our our, our volume one. Nice. Uh, yeah, we do. Volume. We, we do an annual instead of a magazine, we do an annual printed volume that's hardbound, so that it's collectible, so it kind of just it's part of your library. Uh, we price it accordingly. Um, you know, it's 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 priced, I think, fairly for what you get. The production. How many are you making? Uh, we've sold three thousand copies of Volume One, and then uh, we'll do uh, three thousand of Volume Two, and then we'll, we can always do reprints of both, depending yeah. on what we end up you know need to do. But yeah, that that's been the best because it allows people to touch what our brand is about. It's not just an Instagram; it has uh, it has real physical DNA, which I love. And uh, I don't know, I love books. So. Yeah,
0: books. There's there's something about printed stuff, and yeah, it's special. You know, in it's, your hands. it's
3: just it's it's a very cool thing. Yeah,
0: I think you, you go through like an Instagram feed and it's like these tiny little squares that are like yeah. <laughs> that size and it just gets a bit, bit over. Well, I normally wrap these up with five questions. Are you ready? Shoot. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey?
3: Oh, most memorable driving trip. I, I drove out to the services the other day during lockdown. That was that was really oh, that was that was fucking epic. <laughs> My, <laughs> it, it felt like there was never ending, it was just wow. It was like driving. Ah, yeah, wow. It's amazing how with just like six eight weeks of, of not moving, you're like the stupidest little journey feels like this epic epic quest. Yeah, And um, it's, yeah. It's funny that like how. I just
0: like I just want to go for a drive. I don't care. I don't care where it is, what it's in.
3: Just get in a car. Yeah, I drove the uh, the the Napoleonic route from uh, from what was it Grenoble down. Yeah, somewhere around there. We started off some beautiful winery uh, with a bunch of good friends. I was in a Triumph TR2 and my girlfriend at the time, and we drove all the way to the Monaco Historic Grand Prix, and uh, that was a really memorable journey. The car was shit, but it was it was like epically shit yeah like in a good way (laughs) uh and just trying to muscle it through all those windy roads was quite fun the Bernina Gran Turismo in in St. Moritz doing all this the passes around St. Moritz I really love they're they're very special
0: do you have a what's your favorite if you had to pick three events for the year what would be your top three events and and I know some events are not every year so but
3: definitely the Bernina Gran Turismo just because there's nothing else like it. it it's uh they shut down the Bernina Pass, and it's just all the best cars you'd see at Goodwood racing at top speed up it. That Fair. sounds badass. Pretty spectacular to see, and very intimate. Really, really cool. Um, what else? Frankly, I've been enjoying not having to go to any events. Uh, <laughs> it sounds sacrilegious to say, you know, Goodwood's incredible. Uh, I think if you if you haven't been to Goodwood, I've now been been going for five years, four or five years, yeah. I've gone to every event for like four or five years, except for obviously this Mm. one now. Um, And to put it as one of the three is incorrect because I think I'd rather highlight a few others, but to say, if you haven't been to a Goodwood, it's just the most special thing. And I remember that's really when it clicked for me, when I saw how special this universe was when I, I think I went to a festival speed uh, and I was just like, Whoa, okay. This is a thing. It's amazing. And and I know
0: you've been to a few now or a lot now and I'm the same and I'm they start to get pretty samey, but it is an amazing place.
3: Yeah. I think, I think it's just so special. And what, and what that family does for, for the motorsport world and for the car world in general and what they, and they, and they do it almost thank, thank, thanklessly, you know, they, they, they don't do it. I, I'm sure they make money at it, but it's not really done for yeah. the money. It's done to like be done because it needs to be done. And uh I think that's just the coolest. And I think that the, uh yeah, I, I'm very, so thankful to have gotten to know, gotten to know their family and gotten to know why they do what they do, and I have to say it's it's done for all the right reasons, and you, it's really reflected in you know everyone you speak to that works there, and you're like, okay, yeah, this is a very special thing. So th- that's just kind of like you, mm. you have to do one of the, you ha- if you've never been, you got to do it. What's another another one I really enjoy? The quail uh, put on by the Kadori family at the um, during Monterey Car Week. Yeah. As far as static events go, that's probably got to be the best one in the world. Yeah. Um, it's just the most fun with the most with the most people you want to be around, and you can access everybody. It's unpretentious. It's the antithesis of the Pebble Beach Car Week uh, of, the, of the of the Pebble Beach uh, Concours mm. d'Elegance. Yeah, it's it's just fun, and, and, and you know Villa is really beautiful. It's the most beautiful place on earth, and I go to the, the I go to the hotel as often as I can because that's truly there's nowhere else like it. But in terms of just like all out fun experience the quail motorsports gathering is just great you yeah. just get access to everybody in a way you know it's exclusive to a degree but it's the scale makes it so that it's less exclusive than a villa d'Este, but it's just spectacular and it's i always get to go with it with a good group of friends and it's just a really special event what's another one that i'm going to be a judge of this little one in sardinia this summer in, in july called uh the Poltoquatu classic, which is okay. quite funny. It's like, it's primarily like Fiat Spiaginas. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the silliest, goofiest event, but Sard- I, Sardinia is the most magical place on earth. And, uh, and so I'm, I'll, I'll, if all goes to plan, I'll, I'll be driving down there in, in two weeks or so. Yeah. Um, and I'll spend the summer there hopefully. And, uh, yeah, that, that's that's a really fun little event put on by this guy named Simone Bertolero, and Simone he is the proprietor of this company called Auto Classic Italy. He owns these incredibly cool. He owns like the uh, the Fiat Principessa, the the record uh, speed record car, the super aerodynamic okay. looking thing, and it's just it's just fun and silly and Italian, and it doesn't take itself seriously. And mm. you know, like I, I love I love Villa for what it is, and all these events like that, but it's you know it's quite silly and then I organized an event outside of Villa d'Este uh with my friend Guglielmo Miani um from La Miani this Italian fashion brand called uh Fuori Concorso and Fuori Concorso is like a very unpretentious version uh of Villa d'Este but done in a very cool way and we 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 launched my first book there on all the continental Bentleys that I, I photographed a year or two ago and so yeah, I, I love unpretentious events. You know, I, I love yeah. events where everyone feels like they're welcome and, and they're having fun. Like Bilodeau is really spectacular, but it is very like, oh, sorry, you don't have the right band. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. sorry. Oh god. And Goodwood has an air of that, but that's only because the crowd is so. The Goodwood's scale. got worse. Yeah, but you can still go with it with, with a general admission ticket yeah. and be like, ah, this is cool. Yeah. But like Villa d'Este, it's like mm, sorry, sir, you don't have the right <laughs> ticket. Uh, Monaco Historic Grand Prix is fantastic. I've never done a Le Mans Classic. I was hoping to do that this summer, but that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Right, next question:
0: Five car garage, unlimited value. Ah, oh, no, I've got my one car garage.
3: Uh, I love my nine eleven. You wouldn't, if, if someone oh, said you've five you'd got car would drive, funds. would drive me insane. I because I, I, I'm never around. Uh, like I, I, I just like. Talk to any of my friends or any of your friends that have all these cars. Owning five cars is a logistical nightmare, and then just finding the time in your day to go use them all. The one person I know who does this very well is Neil Clifford, um, who owns um, what uh, Kurt Geiger. He lives north of, north of the city here, and he uh, he has maybe five ten cars up there, but each car is just funky, weird, goofy for its own reason, and he he really he's passionately invested in enjoying each and every one of them yeah, uh, yeah. every day. Yeah, I see it constantly just loving it. I I, I, I guess I still got to scratch the Defender itch at some point. You know, I, I need to own yeah. some sort of truck. Uh, I'll probably, do, that'll probably be the next thing I buy. I really want to own this just to own the object that this uh, Continental Orange 930 <laughs> turbo. Okay. So you've got your old 911, you've got a Defender, you've got a Nine Thirty Two. I have a three car garage already. Back in the States, I have a Nine Two Eight GT and a 944 turbo as well. Oh, cool. So I've got, I've got three cars as it is. Two of them I can't drive physically because I'm not in the States. Yeah. Uh, one car, I barely have the time to drive as it is. So I'm like, <laughs> another three on four on top of that. I'm like, can't fit it all in.
0: Fair enough. Well, then my next question is going to be quite easy. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life,
3: what would it be? Oh, mine's perfect. It's, it's got a 3.2, three 3.2, perfect power to weight ratio. All the, all the torque you'd ever want. It'll do 120 comfortably. It's just... It's just screams. It's been, you know, it's been wrenched on by all the best people. Uh it, the, the car got into prank two summers ago or th- yeah, three summers ago. And uh it's now uh it was restored by roof in Pfaffenhausen and then I uh I recently well, I, I had the engine redone in LA by Marco Geracy, who's a great friend, and then I also had um I have Maxed and Page do the gearbox just this past winter and they they do all of the suspension setup and everything now. that I have the KW suspension on there. That made quite a, quite a difference, changing the suspension. Well, oh, yeah, when you had 200,000 miles on the original Bilstein. <laughs> it's amazing when it goes from none to some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. What do you think is
0: undervalued at the moment, car-wise? Uh, I really like to own a 996 Turbo at some point as well.
3: So much for, like,
0: punch for your pound on that car.
3: I've always liked the 996. I, the first like real screaming experience in a fast car was a 996 uh, C4 Cabriolet that my dad's best friend let him borrow for the weekend. And it was, I remember just flying up a hill near my parents' house with a top down and just screaming like I was on a roller coaster. I was like, this is cool. And I still think the car's cool. And I never thought it was uncool. And I just never really understood the hate that it got because it's it's just cool. <laughs> <laughs> i i've i've always liked that i think it also has, has has to do with my love for the uh the gt1 uh headlights yeah. you know so yeah, th- yeah, for yeah, me yeah. for me it was always like your own little gt1 uh, you know it was cool so i i've you know delighted to see them uh, increasing in value like, or you know irrespective of what they i think they deserve but yeah would love to own that but also really love to own a um i could i could also very happily own a 996 targa I think the Targa 4S would be a cool car. Mm -hmm. I love that glass. Uh, I I think it's a very elegant design. I do like
0: Targas. Ever since the new 992 Targa came out the other day, I've just licked them and gone like, I know from a driving point of view, Targa is so much heavier in the wrong place, but they look great.
3: Yeah. Well, that was what's great about the 996 Targa is that it's not that much heavier because they didn't really structurally add so much you know yeah. like the the new one it has to have all this this gear to lift up that huge pane of glass yeah. in an articulated way and then move it's fucking wild how they engineered I don't know how they did it but like the 996 one it's it's a sliding it's a it's a big sunroof yeah you know it it doesn't you don't lose the bars on the side so you maintain the roof line I don't know I think it's a cool looking car
0: yeah they're cool things they're cool things right last question what's the most interesting car to at the moment what are you Googling? What are you looking up? What
3: are you uh, looking so for? Toyota a made a version of the Hummer. Did they? Yeah. Um, what was the name of it? I was just looking at this the other day. I was obsessed with this thing. It's like a V12 diesel. <laughs> What's it called? Do you have any uh, idea what it's called? Let me see. Oh,
0: what? What the hell? Toyota Mega Cruiser. Yeah, the Mega Cruiser. This is the what? coolest car ever made. What? Okay, people need to Google this. It It literally looks like a Hummer. But it's made by Toyota. Oh, it's
3: the coolest. This is mad. This looks like some sort of
0: toy car. <laughs>
3: <laughs> very, very cool thing. When did they make that? It was made for the uh, Tokyo Fire Department. Fair enough. It's it's a utility, and then they also, people wanted them, so they made them. This is in like the 80s or something. I think so, yeah. That's pretty cool. Maybe early 90s. I did not know that existed. I'm totally going to go and share this picture are, with <laughs> Very cool thing. <laughs> cool. Well.
0: Thanks very much for coming on the podcast.
3: Thanks for having me, uh, Arthur. And thanks for coming by. Yeah, it's been cool. Very cool.
0: Sweet.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.